So first off, really glad to see you again, Parker. That's that's really great. I hear you've been all traveling and whatnot. And we had gotten started talking uh, on about the word trust and how um, the society it teaches us not to trust. And that also goes in line with um, working with the Dhamma in uh, as literature. That Dhamma as literature doesn't work out very well because um, part of it has to do with the issue of, of trust. That if you can be one on one with someone like we have at Skype so that you can see the intonations, you can see the um, responses uh, and the friendship and camaraderie that can be developed with a one on one relationship. Literally is the whole point is that it builds trust. <laughs> and that uh, as we had started to talk about the, um, the Dhamma really is all about trust in the sense that if you trust yourself, you really trust yourself, then that's uh, right attitude. That's right yes. noble attitude. If you trust yourself, that means that you feel competent and you're capable of doing things. If you don't trust, that means that you're kind of a victim because things are dangerous now. Yes. Okay, so uh, in a way we can talk about trust is a major component of uh, the Dhamma practice. And yet uh, that conveyance of trust cannot be gained from a book. There are so many things, and this is one of them, uh, that it's very hard to, uh, especially if you've got three or four Dhamma books and the beginner in reading them does not see the deep connection underlying those Dhamma books, but only sees the way that they're written and, and uh, the language is used, and they wind up not knowing who to believe. Yes, yeah. And yet there are many lessons everywhere uh, the the one that I keep reminding myself of is that the, on, in two different suttas that I've seen, the Buddha actually points out and uses dogs as teachers. If dogs can teach the Dhamma, if you can get, gain something from the, from the dogs, um, then in fact, uh, I'll go through both of them for you. One of them was a dog that... Um, he had his little nest or his little place, but he would uh, he would lay down, then he would scratch and bite or whatever like dogs do when they're laying down. Then he would get up and run and and trot around the little area where he was um, resting, that kind of a depression or hole in the ground. Then he'd lay back down in that hole. One or two seconds later, he would start biting himself again. Then three or four seconds after that, he's up running around, circling around the, uh, the thing again. And then the dog lays back down in the hole, waits a minute, bites him on himself, and then gets up and walks around the circle again. Mm -hmm. And the Buddha says, that's human. That's what the humans do. The human mind, the dog is actually showing 
in reality or in, in visual terms what the human mind does. That we lay down to rest, then we get a little bit agitated, and then we start circling around <clears throat> all of the old problems that we've got to solve. That in fact, this is an issue of trust right there. The issue of trust is, is can you trust yourself <coughs> to actually lay down and be comfortable? That dog couldn't, he had no trust. The other mm -hmm. example of the dog is when the Buddha was watching and he had a group of friends there and he, and he pointed out, watch that dog. What the dog was doing was is that he wanted to cross a ravine. And the dog would go up and he would look over the edge and he'd look around and then he'd back up. And then he'd come back up to the edge again and he'd look around and back off. And then the dog tore off across that thing, made a flying leap and landed on the other side. And the Buddha pointed out, this is in fact Dhamma practice right there is the dog comes up and he takes a really, really close look at what's going on. And then he builds up his courage or his trust and he goes for it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Think about that. The, 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 what dogs do, even though they are not human and don't have the decision making abilities that we do with the frontal cortex and our wisdom and all, and yet they live their lives similar to the way that humans live their lives. It's the same things. Yes. Like this. And and both of these items that we have with the dogs is, is seeing that the dog, in one case, learned, got his trust up or got his mojo going so that he could jump across to where the first dog didn't. The first dog remained a victim mm -hmm. because he never got himself comfortable. And so when we look at trust like this, we recognize, oh, well, that's basically what the Sangha really is all about. It's first off learning to trust ourselves on the inside and then finding some friends that are worthy of our trust so that we can build a, a group. We can have friends. We can construct a world that is trustworthy. Mm -hmm. It is really wholesome that we can count on and rely on that they're, uh, they're not going to stab us in the back or whatever like that. that um, and this is something that I found. Um, it was actually a slow discovery. And it wasn't until after I had left the song that I recognized how powerful this thing was. But when I first joined the Sangha way back in the 1980s with Bhikkhu Buddha Das, I was still kind of Western in mentality and didn't quite understand what was going on and how powerful Sangha is. But it was when I was in the United States that I really began to see how powerful Sangha was. Uh, and partly because in, in the U.S., even though there's like 300 and so, uh, maybe 400 uh, watts. The U.S. is fairly big. Yeah. Um, in North Carolina alone, there was like uh, about 10. There was two watts, uh, tie watts, one in Fayetteville and one in, in um, uh, Wilmington. Mm -hmm. uh, there In Charlotte, there was a Lao watt and a Cambodian watt 
and two Vietnamese watts in mm -hmm. Charlotte. Uh, actually, though, there were two Lao watts, a Cambodian watt, two Lao watts, and two Vietnamese watts. So we're talking about like that. Uh, uh, in Raleigh, there was a Thai watt. In um, Greensboro, Cambodian. So there's only this, and yet with those number of less than 10 uh, watts in North Carolina, it wound up being about maybe 40, 45, 50 monks. That was all the number of monks that they had in Thailand. We've got hundreds of watts here in Thailand that have 50 monks all by themselves with room to spare. So in the whole state of North Carolina, there was about 50 monks, but we knew each other. That you could see it by sight, these guys, because we did ceremonies together, we did funerals together, we did um, ordinations together, we did uh, a lot of stuff that requires as many monks as we can get. Normally, people want nine monks for a funeral. Seven mm -hmm. will do, five in a real pinch, but nine is the magical number for monks to do a funeral. Well, if you've got um, a lot of people dying uh, and have funerals on weekends, that means that the monks could get busy. Achan um, Mahas Samsak knew English, he knew Thai, he knew Lao, and he knew Khmer because he was uh, born on a border area between Thailand and uh, Cambodia. And so because of his language expertise and also because of his uh, fame, he was the one who coordinated funerals mm. in North Carolina, South Carolina, up into Virginia, whatnot like that, which means that everybody who lived at his watch more than likely were going to be going to any funerals that were available because we were the first ones that he'd recruit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is one of the ways that we met a, a lot of monks and saw them often. And every time it was um, a long lost meeting, like, oh, wow, I'm glad to see you. How are you doing? You know, and everybody was really good friends that way. And another quality of it is, is that uh, the monks don't criticize one another. That this is one of the things that I see in, in Western Buddhism, especially with um, uh, when someone begins to get a bit of fame, I think, he becomes a target. And so we have various targets that are mm -hmm. um, fairly famous Dhamma teachers. I mean, one example is, is that Chula Dasa, boy, did he become a target. Mm -hmm. It's that like celebrity culture in the West where exactly. everyone grows up wanting it so bad. So when they, want, when they see someone else get it, right? Isn't that interesting? Yes, is in fact, the, uh, the Western Dhamma has become kind of a celebrity culture. Yes with guys who write books and, and things like that, um, to where in, in Asia, there are so many monks and so many really good monks that we don't have that celebrity kind of culture thing. That in, in, in fact, um, there's only a few names that get widely spread around in Thailand. Um, uh, an example would be um, Mahaboa, 
the very famous monk from Udon Thani, uh, who died in, in 2012. Uh, because I was in Udon Thani during that time, I was around him. And uh, when, he, when the funeral happened, when his funeral happened, we're talking about a big city of Udon Thani. Huge city, maybe 600,000 to a million people. We're not talking about a slack. Okay. <laughs> On his funeral, that whole city closed down in gridlock. The oh. whole city was down. Because everybody was trying to get into the automobile to get over to the Watt, and you couldn't park within two blocks of the place. <laughs> and so he had a great deal of fame. The same thing happened with Vicar Budadasa's um, funeral. So there is a bit of celebrity kind of uh, stuff that happens in Thailand, but it's only in the same sense of uh, reverence. <laughs> To where the celebrity systems in the West seem to be targets as well. Yes. Reverence on one side and targets on the other, so that we target each other. Um, uh, basically, with the statement, and this is a statement that's out of the suttas, is, is that uh, you don't know the Dhamma, only I know the Dhamma, that my Dhamma is better than your Dhamma. Now, that's absolutely competitive that's not friendly yes, that's not uh, and that uh if everybody who who said that could enforce it that means that of the thousand or so dhamma teachers in the west 999 of them would have to go out of business and all the people have to come to me that's the mentality that these guys have that i want your students I want mm -hmm. the fame, I want the celebrity or, or whatever like that, or I want the money to where uh, the real Sangha should be the Sangha of uh, cooperation. Yes. Uh, that one of the things that I that I know about Thailand a lot, uh, as, as well as other things, is that uh, when a student had a teacher in whatever fashion or whatever like that, one of the things that that teacher will do will to be introducing that student to other teachers. So we're in the West, once he's my student, he's mine. He's mine, he's gonna learn my Dhamma. Yeah. Right. I've heard so, it expressed as the idea um, that the, the young monk, he thinks, oh, I'm the best monk. And then five years of being a monk, he's like, oh, these monks, maybe, or whatever. And by 10 years, he's like, I'm just a monk. Yeah. Where there isn't that competitiveness anymore and not trying to be better. Well, that's correct. If he's in Sangha, that that edge yes, of the new the important monk will, will wear off when he sees that actually um, the people that he's using as role models are not acting with that competitive edge that he has. Yes. And it's also very interesting that even though it's not discussed in depth in the suttas, um, that in fact, I don't even know where in one place in the suttas where all 10 fetters are listed together. Normally what they have is what is called the rupa 
fetters and then the arupa fetters. Now, what you mean by the rupa fetters would be those fetters that someone can demonstrate yeah. with their lifestyle. And the arupa fetters are the ones that are more difficult to see. Mm-hmm. But if, in fact, you know what you're looking for, it becomes really clear and obvious that, that in fact, the... the um, this happened to me, I would say, within the past six years, uh, was to understand more deeply the competitive nature. That I began to learn that a long time ago, but I don't think that I even quite completely finished it until about six years ago. The situation was one um, that there was a meditation teacher who uh, he and I were good friends and got along well together. And then something happened. And I don't know what it was that happened, but something happened. And then he turned against me. It was almost like um, uh, uh, on one occasion, he gives me a book as a gift in friendship. And then the next time that we have a communication, I'm trying to donate money to his organization and he returns the money. Mm. And that was a big slap in the face. I took it as a slap in the face. Because, in fact, he couldn't have done anything but meant it as a slap in the face. (laughs) Especially since he was out there. Money grubbing. In fact, it was because he was out there on mm-hmm. um, noticed, uh, yeah. GoFundMe and uh, um, what's a Patreon and that kind of stuff. He was out there raising money, so I sent him a hundred pounds, and he sent it back. That got me into a very competitive position with him, um, and uh, some of the thoughts that were going through is, and I figured a lot about things that if somebody can, um, let us say, criticizes, and it is true, thank you. Thank you for criticizing. In fact, a a third person was the one who pointed out to me how critical I was of this meditation teacher. And I got it. And I, I really congratulate her for figuring that out and pointing it out to me. But on the other side of it was, is that he was against me, but I didn't know why. And that is what brought it on. Not that he was right or wrong. If he had been right about me, then I could have handled that. If you he could have been addressed wrong it. about me, I may have been able to handle that. But what I didn't know was why he was uh, uh, on my case. It's always like the the confused thoughts that linger because there's yes, like a direct end. in that confusion, which means that uh, um, I've got to protect myself. And in fact, I don't even know where to protect myself from. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. But this is actually one of the higher fetters, this issue of competition or um, whatnot like that. And that's what I see is the, basically, it's the pavement that Buddhism drives on in the United States is this comp- competitive, yeah. uh, uh, not getting along with each other kind of thing. And maybe that's what I can chalk that up to. The reason he returned the money was because he saw me in competition with him. 
Mm-hmm. And you could say that pavement um, is because we're such a capitalist country that that's what, how Buddhism would filter in at first. Cause that's how everything filters in. Because everything mm-hmm. else is kind of forced. There is no Sangha community culture in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's uh, hidden by a language barrier, if so, or not right. as bright. So this is what we need to develop. We need to develop that kind of friendship so that we, we can ha- at least have some friends that we don't have any competition with and that we can share the Dhamma with. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah. really the same thing as the drunk who lives in a bar is going to help other people coming into that bar become drunks. Yes. Uh-huh. And then the alcoholic anonymous people, they kind of stay in that community and bring people right. out and of Right, and then the guy comes out of the alcoholics community into the alcoholics anonymous community, and now he has a chance to dry out. It all has to do with that association. Mm-hmm. But in fact, uh, you've heard the word, and I like it very much, guilt by association, yes. right? Yeah. Except that here we're guilty of being noble by association. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we need to um, foster that rather than now Western Buddhism is guilty by association of being competitive. Of uh, uh, one <clears throat> one person writing an article mentioning another person and and trashing him would would be something that you wouldn't do in in sangha. This is basically what we're looking at here is the issue of lineage. This is what lineage is really all about. Most of in the West, when they think of lineages, they say, well. <clears throat> Who was your teacher and who is your teacher's teacher and who was his teacher? Right. Yes, that's sort of like an attainment. Um, right. Yeah. Exactly. To where I'm seeing lineage completely differently is lineage is actually Sangha. That the lineage actually is, is that you're, you're not going to get trained by just one person. But in fact, even at Wonsu and Mook, I talk about Achan Po and and uh, and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa as as two of the teachers. But there were many teachers at uh, uh, Su and Mook. In fact, um, Achan Po uh, fostered a relationship between me and an and an elderly monk, um, just for that reason, because this guy he was actually Malaysian and he knew English. And so Achan Po uh, put us together, but he did it in the strangest kind of way. Because it, uh, going to breakfast, Achan Po pointed this guy out that I had never seen before. And what he was doing is he was taking his bowl, Bendabot, and going to the door of, back door of the kitchen, where he did every day. They knew him there. He did his Bendabot, and the only Bendabot he did was at the kitchen. And he did that in the morning while all the other monks were out. And Achan Po says, watch this monk and go follow him. <clears throat> and I did. I missed breakfast that morning, but I went and followed that monk. And um, one of the things that's quite uh, impressive was is that he crossed a creek at one point. And the, um, basically, the creek is running down this way, and the path comes close to the creek and then veers away from the creek and up the hill. 
At that point where the path had gotten very close to the creek, he crossed the creek, though it was clearly obvious there was no way to get to the other bank because of all of the bushes and the, uh, uh, the way that the thing had done, except that it was, there was a hidden passageway that you had to get into the creek and go to this place before you could find out that there was a way up on the other side. And this actually pointed out that Watsu and Moke had secret places that nobody even knew about. And Achan Po didn't tell me about this whole area of these monks. He pointed just follow this man or follow this monk. And that's how I found out about this whole area. But I followed him to his kuti and spent later many, many hours, sometimes days with this guy because he was quite chatty. And he really knew the Dhamma. And he was really brilliant. So this is the thing that I'm, I'm pointing out is, is that within the Sangha of monks, the training is not done by just one teacher. Yeah. That that's what lineage is. Lineage is when you're in a group of teachers, when you're in a group of monks. And those monks are all very, very close, tight-knit friends, even if they don't see each other often. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is a, a way that we have to understand that this is all about trust building. That obviously Achan Po knew that I had enough trust that he sent me off on basically a rabbit hole or a wild goose chase. And I was ready to go. Yeah. To see breakfast and all. So um, <clears throat> this this whole thing about trust to learn to get together with other people and, and trust them so that um, uh, we ba- we take some of those deeper edges off. Mm-hmm. Having the the dhamma in mind rather than our own personal gain, right? Um, mm-hmm. Knowing that surrounding um, the student with many teachers and many students um, is better for learning the Dhamma um, and that one person's Dhamma um, isn't that great in taking someone the whole way. Exactly Uh, so. in In fact, I'm applying now a principle that I learned in psychology long, way back in the 1970s. And here is the principle. Imagine a nursery school that has 23 and 4 year old kids in it Mm -hmm. and maybe one or two teachers. So the student to teacher ratio is like 30 to 2 or something in that range, mostly children. So when mostly the children are going to be learning from other children. Now, let's um, um, give a counter example of that is um, like we have in Thailand, a family where you have one child, but that child has a mother that's got three sisters and two brothers and aunts and uncles and grandmas and all over the place so that you now have one child and maybe 15 or 20 adults. Look at the difference in the kind of education the child has got 20 adults around with one child and 10 or 20 adults versus one, uh, 30 children with two adults. Well, that's what we have in society. 
that we have a society full of children with very few wise people sprinkled yes. around them. Yes, exactly. But when you go to the temple, you've got one idiot like me walking into the temple, and you're now surrounded by four, five, six, seven wise men. Mm-hmm. That's when it really begins to rub off. Yes, yeah, really. That's what we really mean by uh, guilt by association. When you're associating with the nobles who were strong enough and wise enough and and, uh, uh, skilled enough and trustful enough that they remain noble, even while the student is acting the way that he always acts or ignoble, Mm -hmm. then that, uh, just with the law of averages, just the law of averages, you know, um, uh, five nobles and one ignoble, that child or that ignoble student is going to have all of that nobility rub off on him. This yes. is what I would talk about is that's what real lineage is about. It's not just that you've got a famous teacher. It's that the reason um, or the, that you call him famous is because he's already got a lot of senior students around him anyway. And uh, the whole community there is for the new student. Yes, he couldn't be famous otherwise. It wouldn't have been famous otherwise. That's right. Vicar Buddhadasa wouldn't have been famous if he didn't have this quality of monks around him there at Watso and Mok. And so that's what I found at Watso and Mok was not one guru and thousands of students, and I'm just one of the thousands of students. No, I found a real old boys club. Mm-hmm. A real, yeah. a real home, and this was um, quite useful in uh, learning that skill of trust, that skill of sangha, that skill of um, lineage. So, how are we going to get that going in the West? The answer is, is that lineage is already here. It's in the Asian temples. Mm-hmm. And so we have to get our guys uh, going in that direction. That's, in fact, um, um, Eric, by the way, after Keyshawn left Washington State and they got and he and uh, Eric left the woods. Guess where Eric went? A lot. Back to the Dwat. He's back in mm-hmm. in, uh, in his what in his uh, temple in uh, uh, Spokane. And he likes it there because the monks are uh, genuinely friendly to him and he really mm-hmm. likes the fact that he's well accepted that's amazing you know that's just yeah, so amazing uh but um in in one way it's amazing but in another way robert and i who uh lives here in thailand go ahead he, he knows Thailand. He knows that that's available. Mm-hmm. That um, anyone, any Westerner who is really interested in Buddhism can go and make friends with these monks and move in with them. Yes. So first comes the friendship, and then comes room and board. And then mm-hmm. comes Wednesday night, uh, meditation classes, and then yes. comes a weekend retreat or two, and now we're off and going. That's the way that I've seen it happen several times. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not really, I, I don't know when Eric will be ready to do the retreats, but he certainly has enough Dhamma that he rubs off on all the Westerners. That Eric, in fact, he took his car during the winter time and did some traveling and called me on a regular basis. And so I hooked him up with uh, Dennis in Florida and uh, David in uh, uh, Dallas, uh, Izuzu in Mexico. Now I've got another student in Mexico. But anyway, he traveled around uh, and then got back to Washington. And everyone who meets Eric says he's got that spark. He's got it. And he got that not necessarily from me. He got it at the Watt. Because mm-hmm. he spent now close to a year in the Watts. And so going and living with people who are really, really high quality people, that high quality rubs off. Yes, certainly that would make sense, yeah. And it rubs off in a way that people don't quite understand. But this is lineage. Lineage is is that the Dhamma actually rubs off. Just Mm -hmm. like everything else does. Alcoholism rubs off. Yeah, whether you're going out of your way to learn by watching other people or not um there's a lot to be learned by watching other people and just watching their actions and almost more than anything else right Mm -hmm. and and learning to fit in with the community and doing uh that's something also that i think that it's part of the issue with the westerners is is that they think that oh well i'm going to go to thailand and go stay in a watt but I don't really want to become a Thai or conform with Thai. I'm going to kind of stay being a Westerner, aloof, and uh, or let us say to not fit in. But in fact, I've seen this from Dhamma people, uh, residents of Wat Suan Mook who have been there for a while, and and yet still don't understand the issue of the hierarchy. You see that in in the West. We live in a hierarchy and yeah. that the idea is, is that you start off at the bottom and then climb your way up to the top or you climb your way up. Right. And this is a mentality that we see that's just part of our culture. Uh, uh, there is a, a piece of art from the Middle Ages. I think it's called Dante's Inferno. But basically what it is, it's a great big human, a pyramid of humans up in a, in a pyramid. And from the base all the way to the top, what they're doing is grabbing a hold of people's ankles above to pull themselves up. And that the guy that's standing on the top of this pyramid has got his arms in the air because he's a champion because he's finally made it to top. While eight or ten people have their hands on his legs pulling him down and pulling themselves up to the top. Yes. This is the Western society is everything is competitive. We got to crawl to the top and whatnot like that to where the whole mentality of the Thai people is that they live in a network Mm -hmm. and that each individual's person's job is to recognize their station in life. They're the way that they fit into that network. And so you learn to become comfortable and happy and joyful in the position that you're in, in that network. 
But it's also yes. very, very wise thing to do is to get yourself into the part of the network where everyone that's surrounding you is noble. Mm-hmm. That way, fitting in with them is a very high quality uh, Dhamma training. That yes. is the lineage, is to learn to fit into the network where no one is better or less than anyone else. That we're all just friends here. Yes, I heard it said by um, Eckhart Tolle that the Asian cultures um, value wisdom um, a lot more than any Western culture. Um, And he credited it just because they're so old, um, where we haven't learned that wisdom is so valuable here. Um, But instead, it's better or worse, more successful, less successful, good, bad, um, where in those cultures, there's... Um, a little bit wiser view of like the hierarchy or such. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to uh, find a way of introducing slowly this whole mentality. So I like to share with this kind of stuff because um, even though in some cases it doesn't sound like Dhamma, because we're not talking about Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda and the Four Noble Truths and the Eight Four Noble Path, but in a way we really are because we're talking yes. about associating with those who've got that stuff down really well. Yeah, that's been clear that um, listening to other videos and other people, um, there's a lot of Dhamma, it's just in a lot of different languages. And how you mentioned earlier that um, people don't really when reading a book, people don't get into the actual Dhamma. They're just seeing what the other person believes and how they speak about it. And then they end up comparing the books to each other and they never actually understand what everyone's saying in common. And and the worst of it is, is that they have still not made very close friends with those three authors. If he's got three yes, books, he's friends part, with the yeah. books, but he's not friends with the authors. And the books themselves are not Dhamma. The Dhamma is in the mind of the teachers. Yes. The, there needs to be a certain situation for that sympathetic joy. Because even in um, the YouTube video format, the video isn't re- reacting back to the person speaking. So the person can tell themselves what other, others, whatever story they want about the video. Mm-hmm. Um, although there are more senses being attracted. Yes. <clears throat> Well, if you, you can think of it this way, is, is that the videos serve mainly the purpose of getting people interested in the Dhamma enough to where they'll contact a teacher yes, so that they can um, get involved. And if the teacher is um, going according to the old traditions, his job then is to introduce this new student to other old teachers and other people who have been around the Dhamma for a long time. That's one of the reasons why I'm wanting uh, Dan to get um, into Skype so that he can manage uh, one or two. And I can see that with using Skype that we could wind up having four or five or more sessions every week with various Mm -hmm. different teachers um, coordinating it. But it's still the issue of an open mic, that anyone can talk, anybody can say anything. And um, then someone in the back of the room will raise their hand and say, yeah, well, what about trolls? 
if you let your sangha open so that anybody can join, more than likely you're going to get a troll. Mm -hmm. Well, what I would say with that is different than the trolls that are like in the comments or on Reddit or whatever, that the troll actually is there joining the sangha. He's part yes. of it. And that in that regard, while he's listening, it may begin to rub off on him. Yeah, I agree. It's much easier to troll when you're removed in the sense of typing. Um, and actually, I've seen this. Um, there's um, a psychiatrist um, who does a similar format to you in talking to other people. Um, and there are certain people that troll and such. And they end up being much more revealing when they're in direct contact with the person. That's exactly right. That, that in fact, um, let's use it this way. We, we do have this um, nesting instinct, which winds up being society. That humans have this connection with each other. Mm -hmm. It is instinctual. We rely upon yes. each other. Uh, that humans, even though in the West they um, capitalize and, uh, um, uh, let's say, promote individualism, but re the reality is, is that we're really interconnected. And this is why nobles surround right. themselves with the nobles. And the nobles know this. The nobles know this deep interconnection that we all have and that it's, uh, it's, it's deep in several ways. It's deep at the physical level. We breathe the same air. Mm -hmm. And it's also deep at the uh, instinctual level that we all have this nesting instinct. Yes. That we want to cooperate and get along with our own tribe. I have an interesting analogy to share relating to that. Um, so, like, when you're driving, um, have you heard of the concept of defensive driving? Yes. Mm -hmm. So a thought um, is that... So when you get in an accident, it wasn't... We tend to blame the single moment that you got in the accident for that accident. Like the one person took a turn right here. Um, but a lot of, if you're defensive drive, defensively driving, you're a lot wiser. Um, you won't be in that situation in the first place. Like space is really important. You want to stay three to five seconds away from the car in front of you. So you have time to stop and um, make the movement around them, right? So. Isn't that interesting? Because what we're instead of calling it defensive driving, we could also talk about it in the sense of look at what you're doing, look at where you're going. Yes, investigative, okay. proactive. Eyes yeah. open, watch where you're going. Many little things like that that people, when they're taught to drive ordinarily, they have a different view of it. But one of the trainings that I went through was um, the training of, we're the hottest motorcyclist in the state. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's a different kind of mentality because yes. with, um, when, you're, when you go everywhere you go high speed, that means you really do have to watch where you're going. Mm -hmm. That you have to watch for the traffic. Now yes. see, normal people, they yes. don't have to watch the traffic ahead because they're here. Mm-hmm. I'm watching that traffic because I'm going to be up there. Yes. You know, yeah. and I got to figure out how to get up there 
And so we're really paying attention. Therefore, people and it's high are, stakes. Um, yes. um, at, on the cutting edge of their driving, they probably won't be having an accident with other people who are having to deal with those guys. They'll run into each other because they're not watching where they're going. That's the defensive driving. So, and and so you say, well, wait a minute. You're saying that folks who um, who are riding their motorcycles at very, very high speed around all the time, they're actually doing defensive driving. Yes, because if they don't do defensive driving, they're dead. <laughs> yes, the ones who are still alive are doing defensive driving. Okay, it's going to come back now. Oh, you're back it now. did come back now. Okay, <laughs> I'm beginning to check this thing out. I'm watching this uh, other thing on the screen and say, oh, now that it's running, the video is going to come back. So I think that there's a local problem. It's not, uh, anyway. Uh, the second point that I was going to make about that was about cops, police. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about the police, and then the police will stop them. But if you have the mentality that it's your job to see the police before they see you, because see, the police are looking for everything. All you have to do is look for cops. So you've got the easier job. The mm -hmm. next thing is, is that uh, cops know this, that if you, um, if, if the cop sees that you're trying to avoid him, he immediately gets suspicious. Oh, yeah. So if the cop looks at you and you're looking at him and you see the cop looking at you and you turn your head away, he's going to catch that. Yes. But if you're looking at the cop and he looks at you, you got to be able to be there with him. You've got to connect with that cop. If you turn away, he's going to come after you. You hide in plain sight. I heard a story of a robber who robbed many banks. He wouldn't hide from the cops when they drove right by him. He'd roll down his window and say, hi, uh -huh. <laughs> what do you need? How are you doing? Exactly, because the cops are looking for somebody who is... They'd be like, that's not him. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard about that, but this is back to my history. Yeah, it's go ahead. Said, yes, if you can see that cop before he can see you, then you, you're okay. Mm -hmm. If you cannot see him before he sees you, then you're in trouble. Yes. Potentially. Especially if you're driving the way that I used to drive. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's another one that's like that. And that is, is that your speed at this moment depends upon how far down the road you can see. Mm -hmm. That if you can see way down the road, two, three miles, then you can go lickety split. But if you look ahead and you see that the road is curved and you can't see where it's going or whatnot, you can't see, or if it's a hill or whatever, now you have to uh, adjust your speed because you can't see the road. That's something a lot of people in the West get stuck in. I want to be an Arhat when they have no idea what the path is like. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That wisdom is required, and then it's just stressing about it. Like That's some attainment. a good point. Yes, yeah, so high-speed driving and the Dhamma have these relationships to them. Yes, very much, so yeah. Basically, we're talking about that the, that the high-speed driver or the defensive driver is paying attention to what's going on. He's looking way down the road. He's looking around to see where the cops are. He's looking at and and judging what the other cars are doing. And, you know, it's really funny. Cars on the road, just like people in real life, they clump up. 
they, they do go by association. They don't keep those seconds apart. So, like, it's smart to drive in between the clumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, this whole business of paying attention when you're driving is very, very much according to the Dhamma, and yet we don't train our drivers to do that. Uh, that, in fact, the, the whole concept of defensive driving is something that people hear about, but I don't hear any people actually being trained yes, to be defensive um, drivers. I'd agree. It's more of um, a buzzword, and maybe you give it to throw someone in a class who was a bad driver, but it's not something that's proactively taught. It's more of you did something wrong, now you get to, now you have to learn this. And, and it's, so, I think it's a nice parallel is like that's kind of with mindfulness and mental illness in the United States. Where it's, it's exactly the same yeah. thing. It's not parallel. It's the same exact same thing. There's a problem. That, now I need to fix it. But they don't know there's the problem all the time. Mm-hmm. Yes. In a, in a way, you can say that um, that the, the traffic accident that people have because they're not defensively driving or they're not watching the road or looking at what they're doing is exactly the same thing as having emotional accidents because we're not paying attention to what's These happening. Like, yeah, <laughs> or someone could have told you, of course you're going to go that way. Yeah, you're driving into a huge clump of cars. Exactly, exactly. Yes. So the whole quality of waking up and paying attention to what's going on and the normal default is to go back into instinctual um behavior, which means that most people drive according to their instincts or they drive according to their, uh, their, their training in the sense that once you learn to drive a car, people don't think much about it anymore. Yeah. They don't pay much attention to it. And so they wind up talking to their kids, eating food, uh, on the cell phone conversations, even texting and things like that rather than recognizing, exactly. hey, man, you're out there. I mean, this is life and death situation. You ought to pay attention to what you're doing. Not yes, only that, but, but if you really are paying attention to what you're doing, driving is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a fun game. It's a fun investigation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really the, all it's about investigation. That um, I think it's the first skill that people don't, that people let go of. It's either three or six months after driving is shoulder checking, and that's investigation, right? Like seeing what you don't see. They get so used to nothing happening, mm-hmm. um, or so used to the normal where they don't look exactly. in the one place that, that something might come up behind them. You could even go so far as to say that they get bored with driving, and because yeah, they get bored yeah. with it, they're not paying much attention. Yeah, yeah, well. So actually, I, I just now recognized uh, uh, the the value in talking about driving a car because it is Dhamma. It is, yes. That's, yes and the that's, same things can happen with you in, in big time with a car that happens to you in just normal conversations if we're not paying attention to what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And so that whole idea then coming comes back to the trust that I trust myself to drive way over the speed limit, mm-hmm. you know, like 75 and a 35 zone and that kind of stuff. 
I trust that I can do that because I've trusted that I have been doing it because I'm watching what I'm doing. I'm watching where I'm going. Yes. And I trust that I looked ahead. I know there are no sharp turns where a car is going to come out. And yes. Uh huh. Right. Because I'm looking. I'm looking at that. You're road. looking. Exactly. I'm watching. I'm seeing up there, you know. Where the numbers are given to people who aren't looking. The Steins are like, yes, it's an equation they plug in, and most people aren't looking. So that's the variable that's plugged in. So this is how we can uh, uh, see one living one's own life, is, is that you can turn it into a great joy because you're really watching where you're going. You can really see what's happening out there. You're paying attention to it. It's no longer um, boring. Now it's very interesting. It's very curious. I'm watching where I'm going, and therefore I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's it's that's all it is. It's just a game. And when when there is boredom or fear of not knowing what's in front of you with the game, that's when there's pushing away of the game. I need to get out of this situation. Um, but you play the game, and that's all there is to do. Yes, so I think that this this thing that you're calling defensive driving, that needs to be taught. Mm -hmm. People need to be taught to look where you're going, to watch, watch the road. There's there's Dhamma and a lot of small pockets, because Dhamma is just truth after all, so... Mm -hmm. um, People learn it in some areas and don't apply it to the rest of life or learn it in some things. Um, and yeah, it's helpful to notice that. There's a side rule or a corollary in that uh, with, with that that we were talking about before. And that is, is that the corollary is, is that uh, billboards, right? Every billboard has a cop. Explain. Hmm. Do you know what I mean by that? No. Cops hide behind the billboard so oh, that the people can't see them. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. All right. So you assume that every billboard has a cop. In other words, when you see a billboard look way down the road, look very carefully because there's probably yes. a cop car hiding behind it. And if there is, then we slow down. And if there's not, we can continue That's on. That's smart. Yeah. Okay. This is really part of the... Um, uh, that. This is why so many people are capable of getting away with so much is because they're really paying attention to what's going they're looking. on. Yeah. They're looking. It's the same thing. Just like you were the talking about. The billboard is just like someone in an argument. You go to the bathroom because you know there might be something dangerous in that argument. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... I think you mentioned that there was a guy who was a, a well-known bank robber, did hundreds of bank robberies. Now he's yes. a, some sort of professional uh, teaching the cops uh, better ways of doing things, rather than because the cops operate instinctually and they expect the robbers to act uh, to operate instinctually. So when you've got a robber who's acting wisely around cops, they're not going to catch him. Yes, and this is what people... Not knowledgeable of that wisdom called magic, right? He could read exactly. people's minds, but no, he couldn't. Or he may exactly. be able to, but not in a magical way. Uh, yes, so there are many things that we don't understand. This is what actually stage magic or prestidigitation 
is all about. They also call it uh, the hand is quicker than the eye. Mm -hmm. And that these hands, though, are not quicker than five or six cameras. Correctly stationed. One of them no. on the floor looking up at the bottom yeah. of his hands, yeah, another one's behind him looking what he's got behind his back. And so if you had cameras around him, if you were investigating exactly what's and, going on, yeah. but because yeah. uh, we have a particular viewpoint, like from the audience, we can only see things in a, in a particular way. So things that are happening outside of that, we don't know it. We think that it's part of the show or magic. Mm -hmm. And so, um, we have a very magical kind of um, society that we live in. And you could go so far then as to say that magic is all of the lies that we've been told that we believe are true. That's what magic is. Magic is all the stuff that we believe is true when in fact it was a lie all along. But if yes. you tell the lie this generation and many people believe it in the next generation, you keep telling that lie then more and more people are going to believe it. And pretty soon you have an entire civilization, all of them believing the yeah. same lie. <laughs> yes, it's funny. This yeah. is what we call um, uh, propaganda. Yeah, you're going to say this is what we call capitalism, but yes. capitalism, exactly. Capitalism <laughs> yes, this is what we call capitalism. Yes. But we all believe it. Mm -hmm. They're getting along together and cooperatively. Living in a community of friends seems to be much, much better lifestyle than each one of them living in a great big house with a very small family including kids he doesn't like and a wife he wants to divorce. He has to drive to work. He's not getting along with the people at work. He hates his job. You know, why do we live our lives like this? Uh. It's because we have all been collectively taught this way of, of living when we don't recognize that there's something better, that friendship is we don't have to live that way. better than competition. Yeah. And yet we are a competitive society. I guess you could think of that the competitive society has has the concept of um, scarcity. That there's mm -hmm. not enough to go around and I have to fight everybody to get my share. Because yes. I assume I have to fight with everybody because everybody's fighting with me. And that's the common delusion. And it really just, in, in the culture, it goes down to the very simplest things of, like, hiding food from your siblings. Um, it's just been going on for so long. I know. I mean, that's it, it does start in childhood. Some of this behavior yeah. really does start in childhood. Um taking food from, from siblings, uh, sneaking things, uh, cheating at Monopoly, all of that kind of stuff. Yes, uh, yes, and yes. we learn to get away with it. And so we continue that. We're not necessarily put crooks robbing banks, but we're no. still cutting corners. But the only reason crooks rob banks is because there is that small habit anyway. That, that uh -huh. large habit wouldn't have developed if that small thing wasn't there. And then, exactly yeah. so, exactly. 
So learning to come out of that mentality of uh, uh, a competitive jungle, we can begin to collect friends around us that we can really trust. Mm-hmm. And then we can have a really, really beautiful life because all of our friends around us have a beautiful life. Mm-hmm. And so this is what we're trying to do with the Dhamma is to add uh, that to it. Uh, you you know, I, I think you've heard me talk about the issue of the, the triple gem or the triratana. Yes. Right. That the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, without the Sangha, the Buddha, uh, the Dhamma is very hard for an individual to come to, even if he knows the teaching of the Buddha. Mm, yes, definitely. If he knows the teachings of the Buddha, he still has to put it in practice, and that's where the Sangha comes in. That we've always had that Sangha from the very beginning, that even in the Sutta 104, I think, uh, Ananda is talking to a Brahmin uh, within a few months after the Buddha died. And this Brahmin is asking Ananda, what's the difference now between the, uh, the senior monks that are left and the Buddha? What was, what's the difference? In other words, this Brahmin he's the one who discovered it and the other ones. Now that he's yeah. dead, to put him way up high there someplace like a god or a Rama or something like that. Yeah. And, the, and uh, Ananda says, no, there's only one thing that distinguishes him, and that is he found this path. Mm-hmm. He discovered it. It was an old path. He didn't invent it. He just rediscovered the path. And that's yes. the only distinction. The yeah. only distinction between uh, the Buddha himself and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is, is that the Buddha was the one who rediscovered the path. And it's been passed down. And really, the, the Buddha really just discovered a path that was more worn down. Buddha Dasa discovered the same path, and everyone goes along and discovers the same path. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. There's just less except grass on it that they have to cut through. Except that what Bhikkhu uh, uh, Buddha Dasa also discovered was that he was not the only one uh-huh. yes. who knew this noble Dhamma in Thailand. That that was the thing that was really a surprise to me because I had thought it the same way that you did in the sense that, oh, well, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa just rediscovered the Dhamma. That, um, yes, but he did it because he got it in uh, from the literature and whatnot and he could figure it out. But his real education came because um, he met other monks, most specifically the Samdat Sangaraj, who was already well, well connected. His name was Bhikkhu Bodhi Gosajarn, and yeah. he took Bhikkhu Buddhadasa as a student. And that's when the lineage came in. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa had the Dhamma, and he mm-hmm. was also in the, in the Sangha, but now he's in the noble Sangha, that connection with other noble monks. And that's the, that's the thing that kind of blows me away. Another one is, is that... Um, when I was in, in the United States, it was fairly easy for me to figure out who was who by asking a simple question, and that is, do you know Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa? Have you ever heard of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa? And if the monk had not heard or didn't know or didn't like him, I knew exactly who this monk was. And if the monk had heard, well, that didn't work with Cambodian and Lao monks. 
but the story is is that I had a um, uh, a Lao monk. He, he actually was living in High Point, and I was at Watt Greensboro. Uh, High Point's only about 20 kilometers or 20 miles or something like that um, up in North Carolina. And uh, he would come to our temple, and I would be there often. So he and I made really, really good friends. He was young. And um, I'll go ahead and tell you a bit of the story. He, his family was very tied into, into Buddhism, more so than you would expect. He had his father and two uncles. Both of the uncles were monks. One of them was newly ordained as a monk, and the other one had been a monk for many, many years and had very high status and was the abbot of what uh, in uh, Denver, Colorado. And so um, I started teaching the Dhamma, the Noble Dhamma, to this young monk uh, because there was a language barrier, in fact, because his uncles spoke mostly Lao, and he didn't speak Lao very well, and he spoke English because he was raised in the United States, you see. Mm-hmm. But because his um, uh, one of his uncles became a monk uh, after he retired, the family got together. This would never happen in America, but it happens in Asia, that this young man became a monk. He ordained as a monk and stayed a monk just so he could be a companion with his uncle because uh-huh. of his health. Okay, Mm -hmm. and these two guys traveled all over the place. But because of my connection with the Dhamma with this young monk, he actually ratted on me to his other uncle in Denver. And that other uh, that other uh, uh, uncle of his in Denver kind of summoned me to come to Denver. With free transportation, because, in fact, I've got two monks there in the car, and so we three of us, among other things, we we go to Denver. This guy wanted to know where this American monk had learned the Noble Dhamma, that, in fact, the Noble Dhamma is alive and well in the uh, Laotian Sangha also. And that was kind of an eye-opener for me. And then when I, with that, I began to understand that there's many, many in the Lao tradition who are noble. But there is something else, and there is a cultural disconnect between the Lao and the Thai. The Thai actually think of themselves as better and more superior than the Lao in general. Lao is landlocked. It's a nation of mountains. It has, um, especially since um, the Vietnam War, no educational systems at all. That was all destroyed. But they didn't have much of one in the first place. To where in Thailand for the past century, the government has done everything they can to build up the education system, including um, poly uh, uh classes and universities and all of that for the monks and everything. So the idea is, is that the Thai monks are much better educated, better trained, and better monks than all of the Lao monks in general. And I've come to find out that that's not at all true. <laughs> Nowhere near true. That it's that still it's that connection. Yes. It's that's the same. They only have two gems if they're the doing song. education. Yeah. Right. Being around nobles, that's where your education comes, not because you're at some uh, Thai university. 
Yes, it spreads not through someone like effortly, hey, I want you guys to learn this, really, um, but more like people recognizing other people who are more willing to learn it and pacing and leading because um, mm -hmm. they know it's not wise to just go yelling these things because that won't make people very happy. But you talked about Ajahn Po um, telling you to follow the other monk, right? Like that's a subtle way mm -hmm. of teaching. Right. It all has to do with that interconnectedness, that, that friendship. Mm -hmm. And so this is what I'm trying to get going, if we can, uh, for the Westerner to understand that we need yes. to find ways of connecting with each other. We need to have Dhamma buddies. We need to have a, um, a community of friends that uh, uh, mutually support each other and uh, mutually teach each other the Dhamma, not, not necessarily through instruction, but through just communicating. Yeah, that's really great. That's really, because then the idea of religion and hierarchy, that all gets lost. But you mentioned that Buddhism wasn't a, a religion when it first started. It's still not a religion. It was just a bunch of friends. It's just a bunch of friends, that's all. <laughs> but in fact, that's one of the things that I like that you and, and Kishan are making connections. Yes. Yeah, make friends. Great. That's that's where the Dhamma is really all about. It's all about friends. The Buddha made sure that that Ananda understood that that the whole mm -hmm. Dhamma is about friendship, friendship on the inside, and friendship in your community. Mm, yes. And so we need to uh, to develop that for the Westerner, because in fact you can see it that even though there are many Westerners who are trying to develop that friendship on the outside, they really don't even know how, because they've never been around anybody. Even their mommies and daddies were not friends with themselves on the inside. No, the habits are just totally, um, totally foreign. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why going to a um, Wad is beneficial, as you suggest, right? You get to see that there are actually people that have developed these habits, how great they are. Ah, I know. In fact, that's one of the ways that I would say it is, is that I really felt at home at Watsuan Mok. I really had a family there. I do it yeah. now. I mean, I've got it developed so that I understand that concept, but that was new for me then. Mm -hmm. But how could these guys possibly care for me this much? Yes, yeah. And so that was the kind of training that is there, is the training is... To be around nobles, to act like nobles, to feel like you're in, um, it's the trust. It comes down to that trust. Mm -hmm. But I really, really trusted Achan Po. I really trusted Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and therefore I could begin to trust other monks there in a way that I didn't. Because in fact in India, I think that you've heard that one of the things that I was doing all of that time in India was that I was looking for gurus with magic. But I didn't trust any of them. I wanted to know for sure. <laughs> and because of that, I couldn't make a connection. I couldn't make a real connection with these guys because they were all charlatans. They were hiding something from you, yeah. And so it was when I got to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa when I found out that the real magic is friendship, not <laughs> prestidigitation, not sleight of hand, not fooling people not putting them in the state of untrust, but really 
the whole magic of the Dhamma is to be able to be friends and to trust. And so I learned to trust um, Achan Po. Mm -hmm. And with that, so this is what we have uh, for the for the job of Western Sangha is for us to learn to trust one another. Which means that each one of us has them knowing that we are being trusted. We have to be worthy of their trust. Mm -hmm. And if we are worthy of the trust, that means that now we can also trust ourselves because we know we're worthy of being trustable even to ourselves, that we become honest with ourselves, that this is also what the Dhamma is really all about, is to or do unified. that investigation. Yeah. And so that you see what's going on, and you know what's going on, and you know yourself so that you can trust. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, oh, well, that's not me. No, I'm not angry. You know, the, uh, we, we have these kind of um, standards or uh, critical yes. mind, and oh, there's the standard. And you're not meeting that standard. Yes, you are. Yeah, yeah, I'm up there. Yeah, I can meet that standard. Rather yes. than the reality is, is that no, I'm not meeting that standard. But the problem is not me. The problem is the standard. Exactly. And you're scared of it. You're scared, you're scared that you don't meet that standard. <laughs> you're scared of yourself and you don't want to confront it. Yeah. Exactly. And so we don't think that we match up. And so we, we want to hide from that and not see things the way that things really are. But when we begin to say that I'm okay, I'm all right, everything's yeah. all right. Now that I recognize that everything is fine and okay, now I can really look and really see what's going on because I'm not afraid of what I'll find. And when I can really look and that's really very see, valuable, yes, that's when the trust begins to grow. When you when you're not tainted by that like aversion to actually investigating, that's when it's really really valuable. That's when you can really yeah. Yes. And so uh, that whole quality of investigation uh, in in many places, they they talk about the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, but they never make that connection of how important it is to do that investigation, to really the mm -hmm. detailed investigation. And uh, to have confidence the in the West, the books and stuff. And the, this is that teacher and this it like fosters a lack of confidence like i believe this i think this but go and try other people but no in in the the monk culture it's go see them because we all know the same thing and this will just be even better for you that's good yes that's exactly right so today's talk has been on trust and why trust is so important. And you can see, in fact, that trust and friendship are basically the same thing. Yes, they are. Yeah. That we don't, are not friends with each other because we don't trust each other. Mm -hmm. And we don't trust each other because we don't trust ourselves on the inside. Yeah. And so the two-pronged two approach is one is to learn to trust yourself on the inside by investigation, and the other one is to associate with noble friends. <laughs> and then that, that is what uh, those two things together, the Dhamma and the Sangha, is what makes the Buddha. <laughs> That's where that Sangha and the uh, Dhamma and the, uh, the Buddha, that triple gem, to take refuge not just in one, 
yes, my idea of a Buddha are not just in one, the Dhamma, but really all three. To take all three as the uh, uh, as the refuge, and especially the Sangha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why the monks don't live in separate houses all over the place. They live in a, in a home, a what? They stay mm-hmm. together. They're in community. Yeah. yeah. The Internet's really great for this. So let's get some Sangha going. Let's get our, yeah. our friendship. I'm really pleased, in fact, that you and, and Keyshawn have made contact. That's one of the good ways that we can do it, even though we live in separate places or whatever. But sharing an activity like the YouTube channel together, that gets you guys in communication and whatnot. And yes, that's one yeah. of the things that I like to see is, is that the students are cooperating together, doing something and gaining friendship. Yeah, I think that's great. Okay, Parker, thanks so much for calling. I'm really glad that I got back in touch with you again. Yeah, me too. This is really great. And thanks great so much for the, for the work that you're doing. And um, I think that there's not much business that we need to do now that, that you're back into it. So uh, yeah. just, just keep sending my way. I think that works great. Everything. Great. Great. Well, I'll keep great. my eye on it and we'll talk to you later. All right. Talk soon. Bye. Thank you so much, Parker. Yeah. Thank you're you. a dear Have friend. A I really like it. Yes. <laughs> See you later. Likewise. Bye. Okay. Bye bye.